going to be in Revelation chapter 5. We just read chapter 4 in the middle of those songs. And as we move into chapter 5, uh, John's vision uh, continues. But the beauty and the worship of chapter 4 are met with a momentary crisis in chapter 5. Because as John now looks at God seated on the throne, he notices that there's something in his right hand. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this. John says, I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll, and written inside and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. So the scroll has writing on the inside and on the outside, which seems to signify there's a lot said in this scroll. There's a lot to be done according to this scroll. And this, this account that John is experiencing is very similar to one that Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, experiences in Ezekiel chapter 2. But, but the difference is in Ezekiel's scroll, the scroll is immediately opened. And it's revealed that there are judgments that will come as a result of the scroll. With this particular scroll that John sees, it's sealed with seven seals. And so John's attention is then drawn to, to what he describes as a mighty angel who is shouting now, who is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals? I imagine John beginning to scan the room, to scan the area, to see who might step forward, who might be worthy to open the scroll. But verse 3 is very clear. It says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There was no one who was worthy. There was no one who was fit. There was no one who, who was deserving. No one was stepping forward to open the scroll. And, and I think now may be a good time to, to, to ask some questions. What are we talking about when we're talking about this scroll? What's the significance? What does it represent? Why is this a big deal? Uh, Fanning writes this. He says, the scroll represents God's sovereign plan for his creation. And the fact that God holds it in his, in his hand, his right hand, suggests that he initiates, he controls these events as they would move forward. What is recorded in it is under his sovereign control. Later, Fanning writes this. He says, as long as the scroll remains sealed, those purposes, think about it, the completion of our salvation, those purposes cannot be made known and they cannot be fulfilled. So if the seals aren't broken, evil cannot be dealt its final blow. Our salvation cannot be fully known and completed. The suffering of man will continue on and on and on forever. And upon the realization of that, John begins to bitterly weep as it's described in verse 4. Because no one is worthy to open the scroll, to look in it, to fulfill the, the final chapter of God's plan. And John is, is overwhelmed in this particular moment with grief. If no one can open the scroll, all that John, all that we and every Jesus follower have ever prayed for and have ever hoped for will be futile, vain, a waste. All that the Maston family is hoping for now with the death of Heather's dad and all he hoped for of the, the glory and the, the peace of heaven cannot be fully known. And that's why John weeps. A 
tell you what, I hate movies that don't give me an ending. Right, I, I really hate movies that, that, that have a bad ending, right? I want a good ending. If I'm gonna invest a couple hours in this, don't end it poorly, but I really, really hate the movies who don't give me an ending, and, and it's left up to my imagination to go and know, you've got to finish the story for me. Do not leave me hanging. And that's what John is experiencing here. I need the end of the story. What's the final chapter? And so with his head down, his hands, and I imagine just tears dripping through his fingers, he once again is interrupted. And this time it's one of the elders who is there, and I don't know if he taps him on the shoulder, but the elder says to him in verse five, stop weeping, John. Look, behold, pay attention, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the shoot of David has won the victory, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Well, the imagery in this verse, the hyperlinks that we get are incredibly rich and incredibly beautiful. The lion of the tribe of Judah takes us all the way back to Genesis. And at the end of Genesis in chapter 49, uh, Jacob or Israel, he brings his sons together. He's about to die and he begins to speak words of prophecy over his sons. Remember, they already know that they are a, a chosen family. Abraham has been called out specifically to be a blessing and now his grandson Jacob brings his children in and speaks words of prophecy. And in chapter 49 and verse eight, Israel speaks this prophetic word over Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who, who dares rouse him? And the scepter, the, the, the royal scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The lion of the tribe of Judah now steps forth in Revelation chapter 5. But he's also called the shoot of David. This takes us back uh, to Isaiah chapter 11 and other places throughout the Old Testament where David is promised that it is his descendant. It is someone who will branch from him who will rule, who will be the king of kings and establish a throne forevermore. It will come from David. And it's clear that these descriptions, it's clear to us today that these descriptions point to one man and one man alone Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the descendant of David, both which Matthew points out in his opening chapter in his gospel, making these connections for us. And that same gospel of Matthew and the others continue, and we learn about the life of Christ, how he won the victory. What victory did he win? Victory over sin? On the cross? Victory over death by way of an empty tomb. 
Jesus has won the victory. Paul would write this to the Philippians that because of this, Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. And as we will see, once these seals are opened and once the trumpets are blown and the bowls are poured out, Jesus will triumphantly return as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and establish his kingdom. But back in Revelation 5, 6, that hasn't happened quite yet and John's eyes begin to clear and he notes the attention of everyone as being drawn to a spot that is near the throne. And I can see him scanning the crowd and he, he moves past the four living creatures that are described in chapter four. He moves past the, the 24 elders and they're in the midst of all of them. Right in the midst he sees a lamb. And he says it's a lamb that looks like it's been slain. It's interesting that the elder described the one worthy to open the scroll as a lion. But what John sees is a lamb. And not, not just a lamb, but one has been slain. A lamb's kind of lame enough compared to a lion. But this one's known weakness. This one's known suffering. This lamb has been vulnerable. And John recognizes him to be none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He quickly notices that the slain lamb now, though, has, as it says in the text, seven horns and seven eyes. Well, what's that mean? Well, this symbolism means that this lamb, though he has been slain, and though he has known weakness, now has all authority. There is no one who can stand in the way of his authority. There is no one who will be greater than him. To this lamb, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is what John sees. And then as one with that authority, the lamb makes his move. Notice verse seven. And then he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. John's mourning must have turned to dancing. John's broken and grieved heart must have flooded with joy and not, not just John. As Jesus, the lamb, the lion, the, the Lord takes the scroll from the hand of, of Yahweh, the ancient of days, what happens? All of heaven breaks loose. I mean, you think, think for a moment of, of the greatest sports memory you have. That, that play that ended all plays, it, it won the game. And you may have several that pop in your mind and, and you, you remember what happened maybe in your own life in that moment, but, but certainly with the others and you, you saw the crowd and how they went crazy for what just took place. We'll put all of those sports moments together, the greatest that man could ever offer and it's still a candle flame in comparison to the sun of what happens here in Revelation chapter five when the lamb takes the scroll 
from the hand of God Almighty. What I love is that heaven breaks loose in a song. Actually, three songs are sung. And we're going we're gonna to read through those songs. The first one is this. The four creatures that we've already noted in the 24 elders, what happens? They, they fall down on their faces and they sing a new song. What do they sing? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you, Jesus, were slain. And by your blood, you're ransomed for God. Members of every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. Wow. What an incredibly rich song. Pause for a moment. Look back at your text. Look back in your Bible and, and read those words. Let them soak in for a moment. Rejoice in them. I'm going give to you, give you a moment to do it. this first song focuses on is the fulfillment of the gospel. What Jesus has accomplished for us. And we worship him for that. As a matter of fact, that, that's why we, we come here every week. We come here every week to worship him for, for what they're worshiping him here in Revelation chapter 5. The second song, many angels around the throne now join with the creatures and the elders. And here's what they sing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. He is worthy of all of those things. Focuses on the character and the worth and the glory of Christ himself. Our attention is drawn to who he is. In the final song, every creature, every creature in heaven, um, every creature on the earth and under the earth and the sea, all that is in them, what do they say? To the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. This is a song of eternal praise to Yahweh, to God himself, and to Jesus, the Savior. A song that I believe will never end, but will continue to be sung. Their glory, their honor. Now. This is so rich and we could take weeks to break down all of these incredible things. But I want to limit myself to a couple of points this morning. Number one is this. Revelation 5 shows us that Jesus is the victor. And that our victory, if there will be any victory in our life, has to be connected to Jesus' victory. 
It could not be more clear from Revelation chapter 5 that, that there is no one else who could do what Jesus did. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. There is no one else who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it and break the seven seals. Only Jesus could do what happens in these verses. We see this taught even throughout other places in the scripture. I'm going to have Cademan throw this up here. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's us. In our deadness, God has made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us and all of the legal demands that would come along with that. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. And what does he do? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. The victory belongs to Jesus. He conquers our sin. What has plagued us and cursed us from the opening pages of the Bible, Jesus brings an end to by his own death. But it's not just his death that brings victory. Paul would write this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. It's really hard to find where to jump into these incredible passages, but I jumped in in verse 53. For, for this perishable body, it must put on imperishable. And this mortal body, it has to put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, when the resurrection takes place, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Where? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the words that are keeping the Maston family afloat today. There's victory in Christ. This mortal body will put on what is immortal because of him. And Paul concludes that with this. Couldn't leave this part off. Since we know this victory, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your labor is not in vain. Today, my question on this point is very simple. Do you know the victory that Jesus brings? You can continue to go through your life trying to battle sin and defeat it on your own, trying to find hope in, in, in more money or in being good enough and in all of these things, but you will not find the victory. You're not worthy. Only Christ is. Only Christ can bring victory to your life. Only Christ can accomplish those things in your life. What is your role? To turn to him. To put your faith in him. To, to put your trust in him. To pray and cry out and say, save me. That's what we do. And guess what the victor does? Every time that prayer is prayed, 
Oh, he saves. He saves. You can find your hope and your victory in him today. Second point I want to make is this. Jesus is worthy. Well, we can't stress this one enough. Jesus is worthy of our worship. How do we respond to the one who takes away our sin? How are we to respond to the one who is worthy to open the scroll? Just as heaven responds. We fall on our faces. We, we give glory and worship and, and point all attention towards him. It's, it's not about me. It's about who he is. We give him praise now and for all of eternity. We do as Paul instructed the Corinthians as we just read. We be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We give our lives to him. We serve him with, with zeal. That's our word for the year. We zealously live for him. I just think of all of the lesser things that I give glory to and I think are worthy in this world. I mean, we, we, we build these gods and these idols out of ourselves and out of other things and we, we worship and we give adoration and attention. Those things can't open that scroll. Those things won't lay down their life and die for us. Those things couldn't conquer death. He is so much more worthy than we give him attention for. One last point. Jesus loves the nations. In this first song, it's clear that he ransomed members of every tribe and every language, every nation, every people. Uh, we, we are to be about the business of sharing the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the victory that can be found in him with our neighbors here in our own community, the people we work with, the people we live next to, the people who are in our family. We're called to share that good news with him. But we must also see that there's a greater mission, the mission of taking the good news to the uttermost parts of the world. And that is a burden that is laid upon us. That is a burden that is laid upon the followers of Jesus to take this gospel to all the peoples so that all the peoples can be a part of what's taking place here in Revelation chapter four and five. What an incredible event. Every tribe, every language, every people every nation. I've always appreciated the opening paragraphs of John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and I, I took a section of that because it fits so well with what we're saying. Here's what he writes. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Love start that book off with a little controversy. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, here we go, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity 
but worship will abide forever. Missions is a necessity of the church. Why? Because there's people in Ukraine and there's people in Egypt and there's people in Brazil and Ethiopia and Mexico and Ireland. They're worshiping the wrong thing. And they need somebody to tell them about the lamb who was slain. And they need somebody to tell them that they can find victory in him and that he alone is the one who is worthy of their worship and their love and their attention. And so what do we do about that? How does does that prepare us for Revelation chapter five? Well, this month I just want to challenge you because we're moving into some missions emphasis weeks. Let's pray for greater zeal when it comes to missions. What does zeal mean? It means to be earnest. It means to take it seriously. It means to have an excitement and an energy about this thing. We need excitement and energy for world missions so that others can hear of the hope of Christ. We need that when it comes to sharing our own faith. We need that when it comes to sending others to these places that I've mentioned around the world so that they can take the good news of Jesus It means zealously giving so that they might go. It means zealously praying so that their work might be effective. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. If we're not zealous about the worth of Christ in our own heart and in our own life and in our own church, We won't be zealous for missions, I assure you of that. And so the work starts right with us. It starts with everything that we've we've studied up to this point in Revelation 1, 2, 3, working through all those churches. It starts with our own hearts being repentant and being drawn away from our own self but drawn to Christ and Christ alone. And when we have a passion for him, we will want to share him with the world with our neighbor, with our own kids, with our own church family. So as we move through this month, I just want to challenge you to to be a part. Next Sunday, the Gideon's International Ministry is going to be here and they're going to talk about their particular ministry. Come and listen and and be burdened along with them for the work that they do, not just here in the States, but around around the globe. And at the end of that service, because they're not a monthly entity that we support, we're going to take up a special offering for the Gideons so that their work can continue. And then on the 20th of this month, we're going to have some special guests here with us. That's going to be our commitment Sunday where we as a church say, here's what we're going to do for missions this year. And we're going to ask you to offer commitments as to what you're going to give, how you're going to sacrificially give so that we can continue to support our missionaries and maybe even add some additional missionaries in. We're going to have the Moots family with us. Kevin and Mandy Moots and their uh, two girls. Um, they're going to share with us their past ministry in Bethlehem uh, to the Palestinians. Um, that's where I first interacted with them. Um, I met them there on the streets of Bethlehem when I was there in Israel on a tour. And then come to find out a year and a half later, one of their daughters was in my wife's third grade class here in Republic. And I thought, that's not 
a story that I'm writing. That's a story God's writing, and so I want them to come and share. But they're, they're just weeks away now from going to Uganda uh, to serve and do missions work there. And so they're going to come, and they're going to share uh, their heart for those fields and challenge us. And so I don't want you to miss these weeks uh, as they're coming forward. And so zeal for him. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is worthy. And Jesus loves the nations. We should love them too.